0: Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner.
1: Welcome, Stanford and YouTube communities, to the Stanford Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar. I am Ravi Balani, a lecturer in the Management Science and Engineering Department at Stanford, and the director of Alchemist, an accelerator for enterprise startups. And I'd like to welcome you officially to ETL. ETL is presented to you by STVP, the Entrepreneurship Center in the School of Engineering at Stanford, and BASIS, the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. Today, we are very honored to have Daphne Kohler to ETL. Um, Few people I know are as accomplished in both breadth and depth across academia and entrepreneurship as Daphne Kohler. Um, Daphne got her bachelor's and her master's degree in computer science in Israel. Another, and Daphne's another example of how America is a beneficiary of amazing Israeli trained engineering talent. Um, Daphne then came to the farm to Stanford to get her PhD in computer science. She did a small postdoc in computer science at Berserkly and then came back to the farm um, where she was a professor in computer science for 18 years. And not only was she a professor, in computer science, she was highly, highly distinguished. She was published in the top journals. She was inducted into the American Academy of Engineering, and she even won the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship, which is oftentimes known as the Genius Grant. Okay, And yet, in the midst of having such an illustrious academic career in computer science at Stanford, in her 40s, 18 years into being a professor at Stanford, the entrepreneurial bug bit Daphne. And Daphne in 2012 started and was the co-founder and the co-CEO of Coursera, which um, is one of the darling ed tech companies um, in, that has been created in the last decade. Um, Coursera, by the way, IPO'd earlier this year and is now an over, valued at over $4 billion as a publicly traded company. But that was not... But it didn't stop there. After Coursera, Daphne shifted gears again and joined Calico Labs, an alphabet-backed biotech company focused on aging and longevity as their chief computing officer. Um, And she continued to explore the synergies between computing science and biomedicine in 2008, when in her 50s, Daphne co-founded Insitro. Not to say that 50s or 40s is old, but just I think Daphne is a powerful example of how entrepreneurship can emerge at, at any time, and you can build at any time brave, disruptive companies. But Incitro right now is at the forefront of machine learning and drug discovery. Um, and Daphne is the CEO. And if anybody is thinking, wants to be on a rocket ship that's exploring these boundaries between machine learning and drug discovery, I'd urge you to check out the Incitro site to see opportunities that are there. Um, In 2020, Daphne also co-founded another digital learning company called Engagely. So if it's not already self-evident, Daphne's been very busy accomplishing a lot in her one short precious life. And so we're very honored to have some of her time today um, at ETL. So please join me in welcoming Daphne to ETL. Welcome, Daphne.
0: Thank you very much, Ravi, for the very generous introduction. (laughs) And thank you for inviting me to be here.
1: Well, it is, it's really an honor. And I would say that for you know, many of our students, they, I, I'd love to, there's so many different things to unpack that we're not going to obviously have enough time just in the short period of time that we have. But I do want to touch upon a few key parts of these different phases of your career. Um, the first of which I'd like to do is talk about academia. There are many students that are thinking about academia as a career path. Can you shed some light on when was the moment in your life that you said, I want to dedicate my life to academia? When did that occur?
0: So I was an academic brat in the sense that both my parents were academics, and I think given that I was pretty good at school, it was almost a preordained in my mind and that of my parents that I would follow them into an academic career. Um, So it was almost never really a matter of debate that this is what I would do. And when I got my PhD, I mean it was obvious that I would continue to do a postdoc. It didn't even occur to me to do anything else. And then came to Stanford as a faculty member. And I was convinced that I would retire as an academic.
1: And was this something that? Do you think that you actually just never proactively? Was it something where you just didn't really proactively choose it? Um, that, but um, or or was it a decision that you that you you felt like you actually chose?
0: I I think it was more of a natural gravitational pull, partly because of the uh, you know the. the- parents that I had in the home that I grew up in and partly because I'd always enjoyed intellectually stimulating activities and thinking about really hard problems and and that seemed like a very natural home for that and and when I grew up I think there wasn't as much of an entrepreneurial culture uh certainly not in Israel at the time of course now it's a completely different universe over there as it is over here and so it's like, what am I gonna go into business and just be a you know an employee grunting through stuff? And so it was clear that it was clear that if I really wanted to be intellectually challenged and innovate with new ideas, then academia was the place to do that.
1: And did academia fulfill that for you?
0: I think to a large extent for a while it did. And, you know, I think I was fortunate to have encountered and chosen to go into areas relatively early in their development. So there was a lot of entrepreneurial spirit in the disciplines that I worked on. I was one of the early people into the field of machine learning, for example. I started to work in that in the early 90s, literally as it was becoming a field. I remember being the program chair of the... um, what is now called Europe's 2007 uh, conference, and uh, that was a you know we thought that the conference was getting really big because we hit a thousand people and a thousand submissions. This is a conference that in uh, the last pre-pandemic incarnation capped out at eight thousand because they just couldn't accommodate any more people in in the uh, in the conference venue. So and it could easily you know have I think had. 20, 30,000 people registered, if not more, if that had not been an issue and, and did in pandemic when we were, when it was all going virtual. So, you know, it was a very entrepreneurial thing to do, to be early into machine learning. It was similarly entrepreneurial in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was one of the first machine learning people to sort of foray into machine learning applied to biomedical data sets, when everyone around me was still working on, you know, MNIST data and, and you know, recognizing digits, handwritten digits and such. And I was like, this is not that inspiring. I want to go work on something that has more... Aspirational value and uh, and more complexity in the data, and I want to work on understanding gene regulatory networks and transmission chains of tuberculosis. Um, and, you know, one of the early epidemiology papers, uh, long before epidemiology was a thing that all of us armchair scientists now consider ourselves to be epidemiologists, as we are in the post-COVID era. So, I think there's a lot of opportunities for me, there were to, to sort of be first and in at the forefront of an exciting discipline.
1: And so can you tell me, can we talk a little bit then about the transition out of academia? Because many people would say that, you know, when you were 18 years in, that's the point when things are good, when you suffer the slings and arrows of all of academia to get to this tenured spot mm-hmm. where you, have, you can do whatever you want with your life. Um, and then at that point, you decide to leave academia and pursue... Um, um, Coursera, Um, can you speak to, was that out of aspiration, as you said, was it similar to when you were pursuing all these new initiatives? Was it an aspirational pursuit? Uh, Some founders do things out of aspiration. We've also had very successful founders that have the entrepreneurial bug bite them from desperation. We just had the CEO of Girls Who Code, Reshma Saujani on, and she talked about how she had to hit rock bottom when she was a hedge fund lawyer to then suddenly open to entrepreneurship. What was that transition like for you?
0: So for me, it was a matter of deep sense of internal urgency, combined with a sense that I was on a treadmill that didn't, changed very much. So at at some point, I'll start with the latter. There was a clear sense that whatever it was that I was doing at academia, I was doing pretty well. I had a a steady stream of high-profile grants. I had incredible graduate students, and we were producing papers. And it got to the point where it's like, yet another paper, yet another grant, and that was all very well and good. But I began to feel a sense of urgency to do something meaningful that actually touched the lives of people. And actually one, it's interesting that the real transition point in sort of really driving that home was ironically enough that MacArthur award that you mentioned in the introductory comments, when I got that, that was in 2004, and most people, when they get an award like that, they celebrate. And it threw me into like a deep funk. And the reason for that was because this is not the kind of other awards that I'd gotten before, like the National Academy of Engineering and such, where there is a relatively limited group of people who are even eligible to be considered for that award. And I was a plausible enough candidate. This was something that could have been given to any one of the residents of the United States. And I was like, why me? There's so many amazing people out there. What have I done to really earn it? And I went back and looked at my publication record and I said, are all these papers really enough to have... Uh, caused me to be selected as one of, you know, a handful, 25 people out of, you know, at that point, 250 million people in the United States, that doesn't seem like I'm the most obvious candidate. And I felt like I had to pay it forward. Um, And so, uh, and so basically was, what can I do to make the world a better place that would retroactively earn me this award? Um, And so the, that, Combined with the fact that when we uh, at Stanford, based on much of the work that I'd done, even internally within Stanford on technology-assisted education, suddenly we had these big, you know, courses, these MOOCs with you know two hundred thousand learners in each one, and was like. This is a really big thing. So, am I going to go back and write more papers, or am I really going to go out and try and make a difference in the world? And so, I decided that I just couldn't let that opportunity go by um, to really make a difference.
1: And I think you know, this is one of the, the classic um, uh, decision points in entrepreneurship. Is is when there's a difference between the external world and your internal conviction, when the external world is validating you in this case, but you're internally not feeling like you deserve Mm -hmm. that validation, Mm -hmm. um, and then deciding to follow your internal conviction. Um, And it seems like that's happened at a couple moments in life when you're saying, you know, I need to go and pursue this. Um, For everybody else who's on that path or deciding, should I listen to my heart and pursue this? Or should I listen to the external world? And and if, if it's telling them something different, any um, are there any realizations that you've had over the years of when you should just push forward
0: so what one of the things that I've used as a sort of guidepost in making decisions and again each people people need to have their own internal compass on what is important to them to me what grew increasingly important as I move forward in life was to make a big difference in the world and specifically think about places where I have in some ways a unique ability to make a difference. So not something that, you know, sure, I can go do good in the world by you know, digging wells in Africa, but I'm not particularly good at well digging, so it's not going to be all that um, all that helpful relative to having another person go and do the same thing. So I've always looked for opportunities where the experience, the skills, the the mindset that I bring have a disproportionate leverage. I'm a big believer in leverage. So if people are facing decision points, I would encourage them to think about what do you bring to the table that is unique to the point that you can do something much better than the next best person perhaps or most of the next best people in that in that role
1: okay and so Coursera emerges and this is an opportunity for leverage because it leverages all of your academic background and, and experience and then also I'm sure at the time you know one of the killer courses is also on uh, things that you're an expert in as well Um and so I'd love to, let's spend a little bit of time on that. So um, first of all, are you scared when you do this transition? So when you jump in and you're and you're giving up 18 years, and I don't know if your Israeli parents or the angels that are around you, or, or um, uh, if that has any effect on you. If they're like, "What are you doing, leaving this storied career in academia to to to, to doing a startup?" Was there any sensation, or was it easy?
0: okay so first of all my mom thought i was crazy because how could you possibly give up a tenured uh, chaired position in the world's top computer science department to go and do something else now fortunately i at that point in time didn't have to um, you know cut the cord immediately because i was able to take a two-year leave of absence, so I did that, and I was like, I could go back. And in fact, the plan had been for me to go back. So I really only pulled the cord, if you will, two years later when Stanford said, "Well, we have a strict leave of absence policy. So are you coming back?" And I was like, "Not right now." Um, and they're like, "Well, okay, it's now where you don't come back." So that was when I really pulled the cord, and that's when my mother thought I was crazy. Um, and
1: and how did you know at that, yeah. that moment to? to pull the cord, like, so just to, so people can really understand this, because
0: um, how is it
1: clear to you that you needed? To-
0: because I felt what I was doing was incredibly important. And even then we were seeing the impact. This was right around the time that we had uh, published our first um, learner impact survey, uh, which is, which was the a place where, um, we could demonstrate that not only we were reaching a lot of people, but that they were really being impacted with a uh, tremendous benefit to their lives, their careers, their happiness. And I didn't feel like at that point, two years in the company could really, um, survive if I left. And so it was, um, it was more a matter of like a moral judgment. I couldn't just like let it all fade away.
1: And, and I just want to, and I think that's so powerful. Um, I want founders to understand what it feels like when you're actually on something that succeeds. Um, What was the data that you saw that where you knew that this was valuable? What was it specifically from that impact survey?
0: So, I mean, first of all, I mean, there's the numbers that everyone sees, which is just the number of learners coming onto the platform and so on and so forth, number of universities, number of courses. And it was clear, honestly, from relatively early on that we were on a roller coaster or rocket ride, if you will. Actually, it turned out to be a Roller coaster. So that was uh, that was maybe a Freudian slip, but one that is very apt because you know 2012 was the year of the MOOC, and 2013 was the year that the MOOC died. And both of these were completely exaggerated, and, and the hyperbole was just ridiculous on both sides here. But um, but the impact, I think, beyond the numbers, which were the visible manifestation, was when we started to get learner stories one at a time, where people were telling us that they were on a path to nowhere. They were homeless, they were unemployed. They were, in, They were. there was one that basically, it was one on, on the forum saying, Coursera saved my life. And it was about a woman who had literally tried to commit suicide and was, uh, because she had, married early was constantly pregnant very traditional family and just didn't have any path to expanding her mind and she found coursera and it gave her a sense of hope and a sense of fulfillment Uh, we have a woman from bangladesh who saved Her life and the lives of five or seven other women by giving them a job in a bakery that otherwise she would not have been able to succeed at because she didn't have any business training so when you hear those stories and they give you this visceral sense of i'm actually helping people in this very immediate time frame and then you know because one always knows that it's always possible to cherry-pick great stories although those are really compelling. Uh, But then ask yourself, okay, is this really a trend? Or is this just a few isolated examples? And then you we ran this learner survey, and we just, you know, saw that the numbers supported the fact that, you know, of the uh, people who came onto the platform, which is over half, in order to transform their career, a third had a transformative outcome, they were unemployed, And then they were employed or they got a big promotion or a new job. And those numbers are huge because you're talking about, you know, we currently have 80 million people or more on the platform of Coursera. So even if you think about, you know, 50% of that is 40 million. And then, you know, you you do the numbers, even once you whittle it down, it's like it's it's a (laughs) significant number of people whose lives I think we've been able to change. And I'm so incredibly proud of what we accomplished with that.
1: And you should be. Um but but let 's talk a little bit about the roller coaster um, because I think there's also learnings in that um you know one of the I think whenever you 're doing anything so disruptive as Coursera was doing or any disruptive innovation um there's this question of how do you navigate the relationship with the incumbent that you 're disrupting or that you 're depending upon and then many people would say that Coursera was a disruptive innovation when it came to education and universities um and you sort of had one foot in both worlds um. And can you speak to, was that a challenge of thinking about Coursera's relationship with the universities versus the professors? There were other platforms that were going very aggressively um, against really dis- you know dismantling sort of the university structure. Um, was that a challenge? And if so, any guidance on how you navigated that um, for people that are wrestling with similar issues around disruption?
0: So we've made a very deliberate choice at the early days of Coursera that we were going to work with rather than against our universities and actually partner with them as a way of creating a win-win situation. Now, I'm not saying it was going to be easy to get them on board with a win-win situation, but we we were able to do that and and that was a Critical part of our success was that we had the support of the universities in helping us recruit star professors to teach their courses on our platform, having them support those professors in creating high quality content, providing us with the university brand, including those certificates that, frankly, without the university brand, would be considerably less valuable. And subsequently, that translated into what has turned out to be a really powerful component of the Coursera business model, which is the partnering with universities to take some of those learners who come onto the platform to learn um, lightweight sort of, you know, four-week, six-week-long courses and convert them to full-blown online degree students, which is an even more transformative educational experience, much more serious investment, but it allowed the university to kind of identify and, and bring on those students without just going out and worrying about, you know, the cost of customer acquisition, which is what a lot of the sort of traditional uh, companies that that offer online the work with universities for online content all that being said i will tell you that there were very challenging moments in the uh process that gave us that, that ultimately resulted in this business model so for instance in the early days of Coursera, as we were starting to have these discussions with the potential university partners and and convince them that this was a good idea, it was slow moving because this, what we were asking universities to do was incredibly um, out of the box thinking. Uh, you are opening up the things that are most, your most precious assets, your top faculty, your brand, your content, and you're giving it for free. I mean, it's a ridiculous thought, right? Um, and while we were having those conversations with universities on that, as well as on a number of other things that were considerably more fraught even than that, um, like, you know, ADA accessibility and how do you get the platform to be that? And, you know, wranglings with lawyers about uh, ownership of IP on the content and such. Our, our, shall we say, peer platforms were going out there. It's like, oh, we just recruited 100 top instructors. And so they were able to move much faster because they didn't have university legal to deal with. And it was a very significant decision. I remember it very clearly. We sat around the table and there were voices who said, let's copy the business model of those other people. They're moving so much faster. Why are we dickering around with with all of this university legal stuff? And it was a very... I think, courageous choice for us to say, we're going to stick through our existing plan. It's going to be slower, but it's going to be the successful path in, at the end of the day. And I think that the, ultimately that was borne out in the results that we had.
1: Yes. And, I, and, I, and I, I don't know if there's any more color that we can add to this because one of the core themes for ETL this year is about principle-driven entrepreneurship, which is really these moments when you're having values or principles guide your decision-making above and beyond what might be the unit economics or you know, the, the um, for-profit drivers of a business. And I think those, these moments in, in, in a startup's trajectory are so critical and also so difficult to actually navigate that conversation when the zeitgeist would tell you growth, 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 you know, go after what has more um, immediate value. Um, so I know you already talked about it a bit, but is there any other color you can add about how you guys actually navigated that discussion? What did it feel like when you were having that discussion? Um, uh, was it a difficult conversation? And how did, you, how did you orchestrate the people that were on the different sides of the issue?
0: It was a it was a difficult conversation. And I mean, ultimately, it was a call that we had to make the, the founders of the company to basically say, this is what we set out to do. Here is why we think ultimately it's going to be more valuable. And we had a list of arguments, you know, that, for example, having the university support in especially the more um shall we say, prestigious faculty, the ones that are the superstars, having the support of the institution is going to be really enabling to recruit them. Uh, it's the only way to get access to the use of the university brand, and that brings value to learners. So really what we had, was, which was really important, was a North Star on what is best for learners. And having access to the university's content engine and brand was really the best thing for learners. And so we decided that it was worth... The, the pain. And I will say this wasn't the only example where we made a principled um, decision that ultimately led to a good outcome for us as well as for the principles that we were trying to live up to. So, one such example was the um, decision to offer a financial aid option to all learners, even when we launched the paid product, which was the certificate product. We basically said, and we even Uh, told the team that we would delay the launch of the paid product by a week or two if they were unable to, um, from an engineering perspective, offer a financial aid option. Financial aid is basically just a payment waiver. It's not, there's not like a financial aid office or anything like that. But it's basically a process by which people say, I can't pay I attest that I can't pay and I'm going to, you know, get request financial aid. And we made that decision out of principles because we felt like there were so many people in countries like Bangladesh and Uganda and Nigeria who were never going to be able to pay the $50 that we required because it was like a month of earning for them. And we decided that we were going to offer this to everybody. Um, And there was a lot of pushback about lost revenue and blah, blah, blah. And, and we were very we were very much adamant that we would continue to do that. And ultimately, again, that history uh, bore us out in a couple of different ways. Um for instance, one of them is that we had, as some of you may know, a nonprofit competitor called edX, and there was a lot of narrative in the media at that time about nonprofit versus for-profit, and everything that's for-profit, of course, is immediately Tainted and, and suspect as being greedy capitalists, which I don't think we were, but um, and we were able to point to that decision as well as others that we had made to say, look, ultimately it isn't about what your tax status is, it's about the decisions that you make and are you a principles-driven organization or not. And I think that that wasn't why we made that decision, but I think sticking to your principles really allows you to when there is controversy to go back and say look our you know don't judge us by our words judge us by our actions
1: yes and i think it's such a grounding compass too it's energizing in some ways too when you when you do that in the moment of resistance i think it actually galvanizes um it can galvanize the the, the company forward um i'm going to push forward just for the sake of time which is sure. because there's so much um so you, you become the chair of a, ten, a tenure professor at Stanford. You leave that. You start um, Coursera, which becomes now a $4 billion publicly traded company. But you decide to leave Coursera then, um, and then you join Calico, and you start to explore these um, things at the nexus of machine learning and biotech and drug discovery and health and aging. Um, can you talk about that transition? When was it clear to you um, that now the time was to, was to stop pursuing Coursera and start to pursue this next new chapter in Daphne's career? How did that unfold?
0: So this actually comes back to one of my earlier answers to to one of your questions, which has to do with where can I have the maximum leverage to maximally impact the world for the better? So this is now 2016. Um, Coursera is now about five years old. So it seems like a natural moment to pause and reflect. And so I lift my head up from the trenches where I'd been for five years. And I look around and I say, oh my goodness, machine learning is changing the world, which it wasn't when I left academia in 2011. That was pre that sort of big inflection point in the way in which machine learning was able to have an impact. And I, I won't say that I hadn't noticed that machine learning was being you know, much more broadly adopted, but I've never paused to think about it. And so this is 2016. I say, machine learning is really transforming the world and i'm a machine learning person, and not only am I a machine learning person, I'm one of the very few people who actually legitimately have worked in both machine learning and biology for you know well over fifteen years and And that gives me a unique skill set that I can now bring to bear towards what I think is a really important goal, which is taking that impact that machine learning has had on so many other um, areas in society and deploying it towards life sciences where it hadn't made as much of an impact. And I think one of the biggest reasons why it hadn't is because there aren't that many people who are what I call bilingual, who are actually able to communicate on an equal footing with both um, the data science computing um, type of people as well as with the scientists, life scientists. And so I felt like, sure, I could continue to work at Coursera and I could continue to sort of steer that ship, but the trajectory was pretty well set. And, you um, know, I think there were other people as has been demonstrated who were able to come in and kind of just continue to to build that company they no longer needed the founder there i think and as a and as a company there isn't like a hugely deep technology stack where the skill set that i bring can really help navigate that to a better outcome and so i at that point i was like i'm gonna go back and really try and bring those two worlds together and i debated going back to academia i debated a number of different options and honestly the decision to go to calico was a very chance one i had previously met on a number of occasions Uh, Art Levinson, the former legendary CEO of Genentech that brought the company from effectively nothing to a hundred billion dollars at the time that it got sold to Roche. And I uh, and he was also on the board of Google and the board of Apple. And I felt like if someone could advise me on what was a good home for someone with my skill set, he would be a great person. And so I reached out and he was like, you should come to Calico okay i didn't even know exactly what calico did but aging seemed like a really important uh societal problem to work on um and so i figured it was and at the very worst it would be an incredible opportunity to work with a one of the world one of the most remarkable leaders in, in the space which turned out to be true so so i did that without i think having a real plan of where that would take me and I spent 18 months there. I'd learned a ton. I, you know, it's been, first of all, it had been five years since I'd been in any kind of, uh, scientific discipline. So I had to relearn all the latest and greatest machine learning. I had to relearn all the incredible advances that had happened in biology. Like CRISPR happened during that time as well. I mean, when I'd gone to Coursera, there was no CRISPR. So all of these things were kind of like stuff that I was able to um, assimilate during that time frame. And I also realized that what I wanted to do wasn't to be in a company that focused on a single biology, but rather really build a platform for how to do drug discovery differently. And that's what led me to, in early 2018, to sort of um, basically take my own path and found citro instead.
1: And you're learning not about new technologies, but you're also, I assume, learning about how to be a CEO. I mean, I know you were the CEO of Coursera, but you, you, you jumped into that from academia. Um, and many people would say that the skill sets of being a successful academic are orthogonal to being a successful CEO. Um, so can you speak to how you learned how to be the CEO? Um, not, not the CTO, but the CEO of the company. And did you learn from art? Were there lessons that you took away that you're applying now um, or any, any, any guidance on that?
0: Oh, I mean, absolutely. And I would say that the trial by fire of founding Coursera and building a company, and I would just as a particular point on that is not only had I never run a company, I'd never been in a company. I'd been in academia my entire life. So I'd never even been in a one-on-one far less, you know, uh, built an entire company. So it was a an incredible trial by fire to to learn how to do that and really learning it on the job, being able to take that experience where I found myself inventing new stuff from, whole cloth and then going into uh, a company with experienced leaders. And it wasn't only art. It was also Hal Barron who was there as the president of R&D. And I I learned a tremendous amount from both of them in terms of, you know, how to to think about giving feedback to people, how to think about structuring an organization. And then as well as just the core questions of, on the technical side of what does it take to build a drug discovery company, which is a very different beast than a tech company. So there was a tremendous amount of, of learnings, and some of those I took away as things that I wanted to emulate and other things I took away as things that I wanted to do differently, which is fine because every company is a different beast. And I think that's important for people to to recognize. You have to find your own style and your own way of doing things. Um, and so that was a very valuable experience for me on both those fronts.
1: Well, you know, I would say that one of the most difficult things in entrepreneurship or even venture capital is timing, knowing when things are going to, Um, take off. And you've been an oracle of timing, whether that's been intentional or not, of going into spaces that end up becoming big. Computational biology has been around for a while. It's been around for several decades. It hasn't led to that much fruit. Um, Can you speak to why you are so excited now within Citro about machine learning and drug discovery and anything that you want to tell to the next generation of biologists and computer scientists that are in the Stanford community right now?
0: So. I think that as I picked my head up from the trenches and looked around, what had become clear to me was not only that machine learning was transforming the world, but also that there was now finally an opportunity to apply machine learning in a meaningful way to the life sciences. Because when I left academia, uh, to go to Coursera, a large data set in the life sciences was 100, 200 samples, 500 if you were really lucky. Um, and what I saw as I sort of looked around was that there were now a wealth of technologies that had emerged that enabled large amounts of high quality, high resolution data to be collected um, at scale from both human individuals, as well as from, you know, model systems, cellular systems and experiments that when I, for example, did my uh, sabbatical at UCSF with uh, a wet lab in 2009. Experiments that took years to do in uh, a yeast uh, organism, which is a much simpler, easier-to-manipulate model system, uh, now could be done in a matter of a couple of months in mammalian cells, in human cells, and and using CRISPR and and various other technologies and could give rise much much larger higher fidelity data sets and so i felt like we were at the convergence of two revolutions and by the way that's still how i characterize in citro and if you think about the name in citro it's the convergence of in silico and in vitro which means in a computer and inside the lab and what i felt was that there was now this opportunity to create massive amounts of data that would help inform our understanding of biology of disease of therapeutic interventions that can help provide cures um and so seeing so first of all i've always believed that the most interesting innovation lies at the boundary of things because that's where you can really sort of bring in ideas from these different disciplines and create something that is truly transformative. Um, and I felt like we now had enough tools and capabilities on each of those sides to do that at this intersection. Now, I will tell you that when I started in and we had these conversations with various like big pharma people and such that you'd get a slight sneer and a raise of the eyebrows like, yeah, machine learning, very interesting, haha." Um, and it ranged from downright skepticism that there would be any value to the more optimistic ones who would say, there is like niche uses for the technology in this little problem or that little problem. Uh, you don't hear that anymore. Three plus years into this journey, uh, when you go talk to big pharma now, they realize that this is going to have the same impact on their industry as it's had on so many others. And the only question that they have now is, how do we get some of that into our organization? And so I think it was um, it was the right decision at the right
1: time. I have time just for one more question. And if I could, I would love to get your, to have you opine on um, the situation with Theranos. Mm-hmm. Let me just first clarify, if I can exercise that liberty. Let me first clarify that there is no relationship or connection between Daphne and Citro and Theranos, none whatsoever. Uh, they're, they're completely distinct. The investors are completely distinct. Everything's completely distinct. But having said that, while I have Daphne here, and because Daphne is such a a strong member of the Stanford communities and the bio and c- computer science communities. Um, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't give I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak to this because there was this article from the New York times that said, that was entitled, they still live in the shadow of Theranos' Elizabeth Holmes that observed that female founders in particular in biotech feel like they often have to push back at people bringing up Theranos in conversations about their own work. Um, and there's this, these competing narratives about whether or not Theranos was just a more extreme version of the classic Silicon Valley formula, fake it till you make it. Um, And I think there is confusion about what is considered appropriate risk-taking and inappropriate misrepresentation in biotech that may be harming biotech and even female founders in particular in biotech in general. So I want to just create some space for anything that you want to relay on the Theranos situation.
0: So I'm going to separate this problem and this question into two. I'd like to first speak to the question of the fake it till you make it and what I consider to be an appropriate or inappropriate line. And I'd like to speak to the female founders in particular because that I think is something that transcends the Theranos situation and I would say is just a thing that, women have to deal with when they in multiple careers, including an in industry. So on the fake it till you make it, I personally find hyperbole very problematic. And I think hyperbole is something that is easy to fall prey to. And uh, it is very tempting at the time to make bold claims and, you know, make big promises. Uh, and, and it ultimately ends up hurting you because it taints the field because when you're unable, as is often the case, to deliver on big promises then um, I think it creates a sense of distrust on the field as a whole and I've lived through multiple AI winters where people made hyperbolic claims about AI and machine learning that didn't end up panning out because they were premature and that caused a huge sort of drought for a decade of you know no funding, no one going into the field because it was viewed as like such a complete flop. So I tend to dislike hyperbole in general general, and I try and, you know, whenever I'm on panels, try and balance conveying that there is a tremendous opportunity, uh, a lot of potential, but that's very different from saying that things are things have happened that have not happened and accomplishments that haven't actually materialized. In the case of Theranos, I mean, it went like three steps beyond that. So even if you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to forgive the fake it till you make it, this this was an organization actually lied to its investors lied to the patients and put people's lives at risk by actually giving them test results that had no on, on medical on real serious medical conditions that had no relevance to the actual uh, to their actual state of disease and that's not fake it till you make it that is endangering people's lives and to me that's just it's not even a gray zone in the way of like hyperbole it's it's like so far into the black that it's not even funny um the other thing i'd like to speak to is the female founders thing and to those of you in the audience who are women and i hope there are some among you who are actually women um it's not an easy life to be a woman a woman in a position of leadership uh and i think the same is true for other underrepresented groups there are uh, multiple, I think, what have come to be called microaggressions, um, where it's nothing that you can, like, call out without sounding like a petulant child, um, but that happen all the time, that are really kind of accumulate and, and make it hard for someone to really lay claim to the contributions that one makes Uh, without having to constantly fight for it. And so for those of you in the audience, I will make a call to all of you and not just the women that when you see these microaggressions um, occurring, um, speak out. Um, If it's you who needs to speak out, it's hard to do that without feeling like you're whining, but there are ways that I think our, one can navigate that. Um, and maybe even more importantly, to those of you who see it happening, and especially if you're a man, say something. So if you're going around the table and Jane says something and no one pays attention, and then five minutes later John says the exact same thing and everyone says, great idea, John. Wow, what what an incredible insight it's okay for you to say, yeah, John, that was a great idea. And Jane made that a very similar point a few moments ago. And I think that is very, very impactful. So I would encourage you to think about being supportive in that way to people who otherwise may have a challenge finding their own voice to do that kind of thing.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. I'm going to, I'm going to go to the student questions now. There's quite a few. Um, if you do see any question that jumps out at you, let me, let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to just go meritocratically. So the first question is, What would you recommend to somebody that struggles in an academic setting, but still aspires to be an entrepreneur?
0: So I think it depends what your entrepreneurial uh, wishes are. I would say that there are certain areas where it's very hard to be an entrepreneur without having strong academic credentials. I would say that, for example, if you are going into a very science-driven field like biotech it's hard, not impossible, but it's hard to do that without having strong academic credentials that demonstrate that you know what you're talking about. Um, but there are many other fields where that is not a requirement and what you need is a lot of, is, is a good idea, um, perseverance, grit, uh, courage, and being able to convince people that, that what you have is, is is valuable. So I don't think academic um, credentials are necessary in all aspects of entrepreneurship.
1: Okay, terrific. Next question. Being involved in academia for so long, how did you develop a toolbox of entrepreneurial skills? What were the key resources, relationships, and experiences that have helped you translate your academic ability into impact?
0: Uh, I There are some elements of being in an academic role, especially as a PI of a group that do translate over to the entrepreneurial uh, world. There are You know, being able to tell a story, people think of a uh, of of an academic, primarily someone who sits there and thinks deep thoughts. But if you're unable to convince, for example, uh, funding agencies or prospective grad students that what you have is a good idea. you're not going to get a lot of uh, funding for your lab. So narrative is a really important skill. Uh, I think leading a group is a very important skill, especially in the one-on-one aspect of mentorship and and really uh, growing people. That's a place where there is a lot of similarity. Um, There's a lot of places where there is a big difference. So, for example, I talked about leading a group. It's very different to lead a group of individuals, each of whom has their own thing, as is typically the case in an academic lab versus building a research sorry building a, a an organization and a company where people really have to row together in order for the boat to get to the right destination um, in the most efficient way and that alignment process is a very challenging skill to learn you don't learn it as an academic and I will say I'm still on a learning curve so I a lot of this is just you know trying out different things getting better asking people for help and advice um, hiring other senior people, into your organization who've been there, done that. I found that to be really critical. It's a mistake I made at Coursera by not doing that soon enough. Um, So uh, be humble and willing to learn from anybody.
1: And you're a master learner and a master teacher. Are there any other unintuitive hacks that you know about learning something new that? um, Read
0: read books? Um, I've read a lot of books on leadership, on entrepreneurship, on coaching, on mentorship, and just be be a constant learner, and really be humble about knowing that you don't know, and not, sometimes not even knowing what you don't know.
1: Yeah, that's the most dangerous if you don't not, if knowing that you don't even know that you don't even know those things. Um, yeah, that's great. Um, next question: Many entrepreneurs believe that a college education is not needed to become a successful entrepreneur. Do you believe you would have pursued entrepreneurship without your formal education?
0: I mean, not for the companies that I that I started. I think that the companies that I started, the educational credentials that I had were really critical in Coursera. It was a, an important way of gaining the trust of our university partners in, uh, in Citro. I think the scientific training that I had. And by the way, it's not about the degree per se. I don't think pieces of paper confer that much uh, value, although they do in some cases in terms of the perception of the world. But, uh, but really, it's about the, 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 having the strong scientific basis for the kinds of decisions that we need to make. So, you know,
1: okay. Okay. There. Okay. Um, you mentioned that when you received your MacArthur award, you wanted to do something that would make you feel like you really earned it. What motivates you and what has filled you with your deep desire to achieve?
0: You know, at the beginning, uh, I don't think I felt that as a young person. I was very enamored with uh, just intellectual curiosity and the curiosity-driven accomplishments and just playing around with fun ideas. Um, But I think as I became more and more established, I was kind of recognizing that I, I grew up in a, in a very privileged, uh, life. I, you know, I wasn't, we weren't wealthy when I was a child, but my parents were, you know, established. I would say we were middle class, maybe upper middle class. Uh, but they were very highly educated. They made sure that I had access to all these educational, uh, opportunities. A lot of people don't have that. And that discrepancy between people who are like myself born into a good life and the very, very many people who are not. And what I've been able to accomplish because of that, uh, because of that beginning versus many people who are probably equally talented, more talented, don't have the ability to do that, the, the, the opportunity. I think it's important for those of us who are fortunate to Try and give something back, to try and leave the world a better place for us having been here, because otherwise, what's the point?
1: But, you know, Daphne, there's so many people who actually come from resources that don't have that desire. Um, and, and you have that desire in spades. Do you think that's, that came from your childhood, from your parents, inculcating that inside of you? Or where do you think that innate sense of needing, really strongly needing to do something with impact, is that something that you're born with or can you cultivate it? I guess that's what I'm wondering.
0: I think, I mean, I can't tell you that I was born with it. I don't remember that sense in myself as a child, but... I think it's certainly something that I have tried hard to instill in my children, and um, my daughter, who's now applying to college, actually mentioned in her college essay, as in this is a bedtime conversation that I used to have with my mother on a regular basis that I need to make the world a better place. But I think it's possible to instill that in yourself when, you know, people can take a step back and think deeply about the life that would have happened if, like the what if I had been born in Bangladesh? What if I had been born as a woman in Afghanistan? I mean, think about what that life would look like and what can I do to try and make that life, what can I try and do to help make life better for those people? Think, look at the people with a chronic disease who are you know in a wheelchair or in a constant life of pain. What can I do to try and make their lives better? And I think if you really open your eyes and look at the world, it's kind of hard not to recognize that there is a moral uh, imperative to try and do something about that lack of um, fairness.
1: Yes, yes, that was very, very well said. I'm gonna keep going on with the questions. Um, next question is how can we demo- democratize biomedical research The internet and other things in tech grew exponentially because everyone could contribute, but very few individuals can contribute to bio-research. Any comments?
0: I don't know that that's that's really true. I think that there has been a democratization of bio-research because of the availability of resources that range from bio-archive to data sets that are actually quite rich and valuable uh and uh and and available to people anywhere it does require more of an upfront investment so you can't just you know come in and say i know what i'm doing frankly even in tech that's not you know necessarily a recipe for success to come in with the hubris of, i don't need to learn anything and i'm just going to be successful because i'm really smart i you know I, i i don't like hubris um I think in biology it's even more dangerous because you're meddling with, you know, people's lives. Uh but I don't think it's it just I don't think it's impossible for people to go there. I think it just requires the willingness to be humble and be willing to learn.
1: Okay. Um next question. I'm just going to read the question. It's and the question's it's a, it's an, from an anonymous attendee. I am a woman in computer science. Although I know that it is nonsense to say that women are worse in math and computer science and stuff, I'm still affected by these stereotypes. I still feel inferior to my male peers. I question myself whether I'm really not talented. I question whether I'm really not talented enough to study computer science. How did you find your confidence in this field?
0: That is a really great question and as the mother of two daughters, I resonate with that because I see it in the girls that I'm raising. Um, I guess this is one of those places where, you know, fake it till you make it actually does resonate. I think you just need to pretend that you have the confidence and eventually it will come to you as you as you get more and more external signals that you are as good as your male peers, um, because you are. And I will tell you that those stereotypes, as more and more research has been done. They have no validity. One of my favorite papers that I actually hung on my, uh, you know, uh, corkboard in my office at Stanford before I even left was a paper from Science. I think it was 2008 or so that showed uh, on the x-axis a measure of. Equity in society, as measured by various UN metric, there was a metric that the UN had defined that had to do with salary equity, number of women in positions of power, and so on and so forth. And the Y axis was the so-called math gap. And you know what? As you move to the right, when there was more and more equity in society, the math gap closed to the point that in the Scandinavian countries, where there is no gap in equity, that Girls were actually outperforming boys in these PISA tests, which are these sort of math tests that are given in high school. So there is no gap. Just keep telling yourself that and just try and let it roll over you, over your back when, when people tell you otherwise. Okay.
1: Um, thank you. We have one, time for one final question, which is, it's how much of the biotechnology in vitro comes from yourself versus your team? Furthermore, when constructing the team, to what degree did you prioritize business knowledge versus biotechnology?
0: So, um, every company is a team effort, uh, biotech more so than most, and especially a company like incitro where what we're trying to do is bring together disciplines that are very, very disparate and don't usually talk to each other. So, um, I would say that the vast majority of knowledge in the company comes from people other than myself, certainly on the biology side. And I'm very proud to have assembled an incredible team of individuals that are not only super smart in their own discipline, but also Come in with not only the willingness but the active interest to collaborate with each other, uh, with people with um, expertise very different than their own. And I think that is at the core of what will make Incitro successful. Um, In terms of the uh, business knowledge, I'm fortunate to have uh, an incredible group of business people, all of whom, as it happens, were trained as scientists before they went into the business world. So my chief business officer is a chemist from Harvard, uh, her uh, second in command, did his PhD in genomics, also at Harvard. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have uh, business people who are scientists and deeply understand what we do from a scientific perspective. And I highly recommend that when you are hiring business people, that is an attribute to look for.
1: I'll sneak in this final question. We have a minute. Fast forward to a few years later, what does Insitro's success look like to you personally? Do you have a vision of when you feel like you're going to be a success uh, with Incitro?
0: so um I'm, I'm gonna go back and say my daughter asked me a few months ago actually i guess over a year ago now uh mommy when you isn't citro your perfect job and i thought about that and i said no not quite right now and she said why not and i said because one of the things that we had at coursera that i don't have at citro is that i'm able to stand in front of an all hands every week and read a learner story or have someone read a learner story of someone whose life we've been able to impact uh, we don't have that yet at Insitro because drug discovery is a really long journey, and it takes a long time before you can point to a patient whose life you actually have changed by the work that you did. So when you ask me what success looks like at Insitro a few years from now, uh, it's when we have drugs that have gone out into the market, and I can bring a patient into Incitro who would stand up in front of the company and say, my life is better because of the work that you all did.